Hello and welcome to Just Up The Trail. My name's Rob Jones. Welcome to the show. My guest today is Leah Atherton. Leah is a poet and a trail runner. Leah and I first met in my living room on the second morning of her attempt at the fastest known time for the South West Coast Path. The previous day she had set off from Poole with a view to get to Portland where I live. One of her crew put a shout out on the socials if anyone could lend a hand with anything to get in touch. And then at some point, I think we talk about it in the episode, at some point a message went out that they kind of needed somewhere to stay. They hadn't organised it, so we offered our drive. And we played a tiny, tiny part in this attempt of hers to run 630-odd miles in a stupid amount of time. I think she would. She had to average over 50 miles, or she had to average 50 miles a day to do it within the record, which just seems crazy. The thing with ultra running is I find it both absolutely crazy and absolutely intriguing. There's an element of, I wonder if I could do that. And I did actually get a bit of a running bug a few years ago. And I think I even publicly stated that my ambition was to complete a 100-mile ultra race. And I did all right. I got up to about a long run being about 10 miles. And then I managed, I did something to my knee, which I never got sorted out. And now I'm just too scared to run at all in case it hurts too much. So when I speak to someone like Leah, who had just put her body and her mind through such a challenge, I can't quite get my head around it. The thing that appeals to me about trail running in general is being able to move at a pace that you dictate through a beautiful landscape and have the fitness to go fast when you want to go fast and slow up when you want to slow up and take in your surroundings there's something quite beautiful about human powered transport over such a long distance we also talk about her poetry she wrote a book of poetry which is inspired by a previous trip on the southwest coast path and there's some beautiful stuff in that. And I wonder if there's a line between creativity and our access to the outdoors or what we do in the outdoors. It's a subject I really want to explore on this show um, as as I talk to creative people who do find their, their muse, if you like, in the outdoors. There'll be links in the show notes to Leah's Instagram. There'll be other links to Verve Poetry Press. So if you want to get her book, you can. It really is very good. So I started my conversation with her by asking her just how she got into running in the first place. So, Leah, tell me, how did you get into running in the first place? And when did you realise that you were good at it? The first one is a really easy question to answer. Um, since I was, like, this big um, with my dad... Uh, so he was a champion athlete. If you're around the West Country, especially South Devon, just mentioned like the beardy old guy in like the yellow vest and the blue shorts who would just win everything. That was him. So I used to spend most of my kind of growing up years hiking, running on the trails with him, lapsed as a teenager and in university because, you know, obviously teenage rebellion and then kind of came back to it after he died it was just a thing where like I kind of went out when I was living in Spain it was like five o'clock in the morning and I had no kit so I went out in like chino shorts because that was what I had and a pair of converse and it was horrible and I went out the next day and did it again and you know typical thing um 
I still don't think I'm very good at it objectively. I mean, I'm very happy with where I'm at. I am a happy, cheerful, mid-pack runner. I'm the person who's going to have the most fun out on the trails because I'm going to be making friends. I don't think there's been like an event where I've been out and not made at least one new friend on the route. So I'm like, great. Is the view fantastic? This is fun. So the winning doesn't come into it. I only seem to get competitive after 20, sorry, after about 200 miles and that's dumb. So it's kind of like the competition with yourself then at that point. Yeah, because at that point, no one asks how fast you've gone. No, no, just the fact that you're still going. So um, would you have started like cross country at school and then... um... Cross country. Yeah. I was one of those weird kids that loved it. Oh, see, I I was always at the back. Me and my mate would just walk around talking about metal bands and stuff. And then we'd have our PE teacher shouting us, why aren't you running, you know? When you got back into it then after university, was it straight onto trails then in Spain? Pretty much, yeah. We had this, like, um, while I was living in Spain, this sort of pinewood forest quite close by. So I just used to kind of go and randomly set myself in a direction. I think at one point I ended up at the out-of-town Ikea and then realised I had to find my way home after that. Uh, That was fun. And then, yeah, the next semester I was living in the Black Forest in Germany. Oh, I bet there's some good trails around there. So good. Like, have you been? No, it's on it's on our list. We've always been tentatively planning a train and hiking and camping trip to Norway on like um, Eurorail, so jumping on and off all the time. So we think, well, that'd be a stop. We'll go there for a few days on our way up, like then going up to Hamburg and then all the way up through and go take the kids camping up, up in Boda, up above the Arctic Circle. That sounds amazing. Uh, when, like, what was your first event? I mean, aside from the sort of local fun runs that you do as a kid, um, my first proper running event was uh, the Wolf Run, September 2013. It was kind of happening around the same time as I was training for, at the time, for my black belt in martial arts. So I kind of came back to running proper, like, long distances instead of going just pottering at that point. And then shortly after that, the Teach First 10K in Sutton Park Signed up for it with a mate in both cases and absolutely loved it. Because like the wolf run, the the best part about it for me was kind of running on muddy trails and like jumping over tree roots. And then Sutton Park is surprisingly wild considering it's an urban park, um, which is great. So yeah, pretty much from there, just never looked back. So at, at what point do you start looking at going a bit further? I was really slow to that. So I think I only did my first half marathon in 2014 and I was bricking it because I was so terrified I wouldn't make the cutoffs. And then I've always been really kind of conservative when building up distances. I say this as someone who has done epic nonsense for a few years. Um, So I only did my first marathon in 2016 um, and only considered jumping up to the marathon after I was really comfortable with a half and kind of it didn't hold fear for me and then 2016 it was while I was in the midst of like taper madness and what turned out later on having found out to be really bad PTSD symptoms I was like I need purpose and right at about that time uh, Damien Hall had just set his record on the southwest coast path you know the 10 days 15 hours one And I sort of remember reading about it and just going, people run this? Because like, 
my dad and I had always been talking about like section hiking it. You know, we got the tents and everything. We were we were kind of going, yeah, we can go to Cornwall. We can hike a couple of days. It'll be great. Um, never got the chance to do it. And I was like, I mean, he did it. I'm not going to be anywhere near that fast, but like people can run this. And it was coming up to like the um, ten- the 10th anniversary of my dad passing away was 2018. So I was like, I'm nowhere near being able to run 630 miles right now because I hadn't even run a marathon at that point. So I went, okay, and literally set myself on the 10th anniversary of my dad's death. I am going to run the entire Southwest Coast path on my own carrying all my kids i mean talk about smart objectives i was gonna say you had you carrying all your tent and everything with you completely solo first time around yeah that's mental so um what was it about the uh 2018 trip that really stood out for you then a couple of things one being that um it was the first time that my head really went quiet in my entire life it it took like two days um and then everything just sort of melted away and there's this really weird clarity that happens when you're on a sort of long multi-day thing where the only thing that you have to worry about is you get up you pack like break camp and then the only thing that has to occupy your worries or your cares for the entire day is getting to point b you you just got it's to put wonderful foot, isn't it yeah you just have to put one foot in front of the other until you get where you're going. And the great thing about having the tent on your back is if it all goes pear-shaped and you're just like, do you know what? I can't be bothered or let's just stay here. The beach is fantastic. You can. It's great. We found that in our first big trip with the kids. We went up and did the West Island Way. Such a good route. Like my youngest was five. Okay, that's a big route for little legs. Yeah. Um, we carried all our game. We overpacked. We had like massive rucksacks on and everything. And we just we just sort of out now for our next trip. And now they're all a bit bigger. We're all we've with all our camping gear. No one's got a bag bigger than thirty liters. No no one's going to be carrying more than eight kilos. I don't reckon. We've really trimmed it right down. It's really cool. It's really good when you can get it there. So I mean, my pack at the time, uh, the only thing I didn't carry was a stove because I was just like. If I'm knackered from running, the last thing I want to be doing is futzing around with a jet boil, trying to persuade it to light and, you know, sitting there eating my sad little bowl of porridge. I'm like, no, I want chips. Um, so that was the only bit that I didn't carry. And I had like seven kilos, eight with, you know, snacks and water and all the rest of it. So it, it was pretty light. Um, it was surprisingly easy to run with. And like, the other thing that stands out for it is that throughout the entire route, much like when I kind of came across you guys in 2020, people were just really nice. People were great. It was it was awesome because um, like I'd put a little note out to the Trail Running Southwest Facebook group and was like, hey, guys, um, I'm doing a thing. I'm going to be on my own. So like if you see me, just give us a wave. Yeah, say hi. Say hi. Um, I'll have been on my own for quite some time, so please spare me from talking to the rocks. Yeah, trail magic is wonderful. We came around a corner in Scotland and there was a little stool set up and there were some bananas and 
Hazel cried because Hazel, my wife, she cried like tear two. We were on about day three or four, like, and she was like, "Fresh fruit, it's amazing," you know. And like we each took a banana, and I only had a ten pound note, so I stuck that in like the voluntary box as well. So like five bananas for a tenner, and they were amazing. <laughs> but it's just those little acts, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. So like um, on, I think it was day nine, I was trying to cross the river at Bantham and the ferry wasn't running because the tide was out and I was like great what do I do do I take a taxi so I'd gone into the pub because I had no signal and was like can I use your phone to try and call a taxi to get me over to the others and this old dude who must have been at least in his 70s sort of finishes off his pint and in the thickest Devon accent is like got a boat I'll row you (laughs) (laughs) I, I feel weird saying yes to this because I don't really want to like cause you a mischief, but so yeah, um, turned out that the boat was essentially a bathtub. Like it, it was just this tiny plastic little thing, and there's me sort of precariously hanging off the side of it. <laughs> this is how I die. But it got me across, and it meant I could go further that day. And like people who were sort of driving when I was you know, staying in a hostel or, you know, off the path or anything. If they sort of saw me walking along the road, the number of people who just sort of stopped and were like, jump in. And in a city, you would never, you would never. But on the trail and sort of anywhere kind of relatively rural, I mean, I grew up rural. You see somebody walking and you're like, just 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 jump in. It's fine. So, yeah, it, it was awesome. And I ended up making some friends down that way uh over in the cornish community so yeah i think some of it is that people just can't actually get their head around what you're doing and you're just this little enigma they're trying to understand so if they can spend a little bit of time with you then they might just i don't know just figure it out a little bit yes or in some cases they spend a lot of time out on the southwest coast path themselves um in one case i got directions and uh, breakfast thrust upon me by a lady who'd walked the entire coast path with her husband and dog several years back. She was like, oh, yeah, you don't want to go that way because that way, you know, horrible for various reasons. You want to go this way. There, there's a walk around where you don't have to get your feet wet. And you know, she was like, here, have toast. Behold, croissants. Take it with you. You'll need it. And I was like, okay. Was it like one of those um, when you go off on the... Um... When you go off, I don't, I don't know, this might smack of my wife's middle classness. She always talks of uh, going off on skiing holidays with her parents. And like obviously, bre- breakfast was paid for. You have to find your lunch. And they'll just fill their pockets for the croissants off the buffet breakfast and have them on the hill. Pretty much, yeah. I, I had so many, like, you know, the little prepackaged uh, rolly pancakes or croissants or like brioche. I, I couldn't look one in the face for a while afterwards, but... They're light and, you know, it's fine if they get squashed. So so um, how long did that trail take you then doing the fast pack? First time round, uh, 31 days. 31 days doing something. That's that's pretty good going, to be honest. Cause yeah. We, we look at it, like doing it with the kids and we think, well, we'll probably need like five or six weeks to do it. But I mean, that did work out at like five weeks. Um, I didn't have any zero days, but I did have a couple of quite short ones. So... I think my longest day was 28 and the shortest was, I think, 13. So there were a couple of really short ones in there. 
Yeah. See, a big day for us is like 2022. But then I suppose you're walk, you're hiking the uphills and running the downhills in the flats there, aren't you? Yeah. Great. So after 31 days, your head is filled with enough to produce a lovely book full of poetry. <laughs> yeah. Which I wanted to get into because I kind of like exploring this this link between um like outdoor adve- like adventure and then the creative process really so while you're running are you actually writing in your head are you actually coming out with like full verses or are you just exploring themes or just playing around with words or that looks cool what can i do with that um all of the above honestly um so i usually have something a little bit like this with me um which that time around I was journaling all the way through it. So at the end of the day, if I kind of encountered something that was really cool or, you know, just to kind of think about what I was working through in my head at the time. But by about day three, I definitely was that crazy, sort of the outdoors version of the crazy person on the train, just repeating these lines over and over and over to myself. And that ended up being the first draft of um trail magic which is the first kind of proper poem in there um so you know most of the time it just like it's incredibly it's incredibly messy and disorganized and crossed out and written over and do you get something for your like i'm trying to think the way but there's a kind of bipolar nature to like an extreme endurance event isn't or a challenge and do you need like the lows and the highs in order to create do you think or um it depends on how you work as creative so some of my friends within the poetry community work best whilst they're kind of in the middle of whatever it is that they're writing about so whatever it is that's going on in your head um whatever life experience it is some people work really well kind of in the midst of it um the way I tend to work is I need to kind of take a step back. So a lot of the poetry in the collection um, is really kind of with the perspective that um, that distance affords you when you kind of separate yourself out from all of the noise and the extraneous gump that's sort of going on where you've got stuff going on around you and you don't have time to process properly. And then you have a few days out and you must find this as well when you're out on a long trip for several days in a row you you just suddenly your brain goes oh that's the thing I was I, I didn't even realize that was the thing that I needed to figure out but now here it is so for me it kind of it it's a really solid opportunity to kind of let everything unconsciously percolate and then by the time I've got to wherever it is I'm sleeping for the night at that stage, I know what it is I want to talk about or how I view something because you know when lots of big things happen all at the same time, half the time you don't know how you feel about it when it's happening. You're just like, I don't know. The world is on fire. I am just trying to make it to tomorrow without burning my ramen noodles. No, exactly that. There's this last sort of like six or nine months, we've just been absolute carnage, isn't it? And I think we've all been struggling a little bit, so... I just don't know when we get the stop to process it. I think I, like the, the trail is cooling, I think, in the moment to, to lots of us. So. Definitely, yeah. So um, your your lovely book was published uh, July 2020? 
in the middle of lockdown. Um, just when you want to be going out and performing it. And so, so this is the other thing. Do you write for it to be read or do you write to perform it, if perform is the right word? Both. Depends on the poem. It's, it depends on the poem. Um, so I really enjoy being able to kind of perform the poetry because it's sort of where what you've put down on the page has a little bit of a drunk baby with theatre and it means that you can do some really interesting things with kind of pitch and tone and speed and um, you can do really really interesting things that can kind of add an entire extra level to the words that you're saying but it has to also work on the page Um, and sometimes I'll write purely for the page so there are some in there that are purely page poems there are some that are far more performance poems yeah it it depends on the thing but I really do love that feeling of like this is what I meant and it can change as well from performance to performance there's that kind of evolution I suppose would it be that um like the stuff that is for the page as you say that's the stuff the kind of I'm trying to find the right words to be honest like it's crafted and every word is is deliberate not to say that other words aren't deliberate but every word is deliberate and yet it has to pay its way yeah yeah and then the stuff that you perform is almost like an evolution and it's still in that process and it's probably and it's probably never finished uh yeah so i mean this is my copy and um i have notes on it um i i have scribbles on it i have changed words depending on my mood and it really depends because the bulk of the poems were written about and after the fast pack, but some of them were written beforehand, some of them were written after. Like It's a living document, really. Yeah, and the thing is, I am not the same person who did that fast pack. I've changed as a human being, and my relationship with those poems has changed. So one of my favorites in there is um Pete Bog Magic which I wrote like it's one of the oldest poems in there I wrote it way back in like 20 2016 and it's still one of my favorites but my relationship with it and how I perform it has changed over the years and and it's interesting just kind of from a performance and from a creative standpoint sort of looking at how you then approach work that you needed to create and you needed to produce and you needed to perform in a certain way at the time but um it's almost kind of as you sort of grow past that experience or you get past what you were sort of processing in that poem and the stance of that poem then you're kind of looking at it almost like an older sibling and it's a little bit like if you've listened to um, the Taylor Swift remasters and the difference between listening to Red Taylor's version and like the 2012 version. And like in 2012, she can't do all too well without crying every single time. And 10 years later, it's one of her favourite tracks. It's a fan favourite track and it will always mean something completely different. And it sounds different as a result. And it's interesting looking at it from the perspective of like, if you've written something a long time ago, what what does someone who heard it the first time around when you were going through whatever it is, what's the, what's that person going to hear now that you perform it? 
you know, is there going to be a little bit of tongue in cheek? Is there going to be a little bit of wry humour to it? Is there going to be kind of a nod that, do you know what? Yeah, that really sucked. That was a horrible thing to go through. But, you know, it's that kind of sense of defiance that might come out that might not have been present originally. So it, it's really interesting just from like a creative standpoint. Mm-hmm. Um, here's a massive segue. In terms of performance, we've been talking about like performing poetry and that. In terms of your running performance, how does like training differ when you for like a big endurance event like or an endurance challenge like the southwest coast path compared to i don't know your standard half marathon he says standard half marathon like he can just pull 13 miles out of his ass but i think you get the what i'm getting at so um when i went for the record attempt i worked i worked my backside off for that for basically two years and you know, 2019, I'm not going to lie, I was a mess because um, I took on way too much in 2018 with the fast pack. And then I kind of bounced into a load of races and I was a walking textbook case of um, overtraining syndrome by that point. But like 2019, I was like, okay, I'm going back, I'm getting the record and started adjusting my training and then started working with a coach because I realized, you know what, you cannot wing this. You've got no idea what you're doing. Do you know who does? A professional. Let's farm out the brain power and get someone who actually knows what they're talking about to do it so that A, you reach the start line in enough of a good condition to be able to try and take it on and B, so that you're not completely ruined at the end of it. So would it be like not, um, it's not my world, but would it be like running like, four four times a week five times a week a long you know long runs and... i mean i run six days a week as normal but what we did was um we got more and more specific over the course of 2020 so um my coach sophie was awesome with this and kind of had me building up to have a series of back-to-back long runs so when normally she just kind of goes go out for you know a couple of hours or you know when she gets specific, she gets hella specific. Um, so I had things like, you know, I'd take a random Friday off work. And um, one of the sessions that I will have forever embedded in my brain was log a vertical kilometre in the Mulvins. So that's, uh, I don't know if you know uh, Worcestershire Beacon, but there's one way up it. I'm from Lempster originally. Do you know Lempster? Awesome. Yeah. So, you know, exactly. Happy Valley. You know the one from like the red vine, the the red lion up to the top of the beacon. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, it's basically up and down that four times, and then she was like, and at the end of that, run back to Birmingham. Oh Jesus, which is what <laughs> thirty-seven miles. So yeah, it it was uh, forty. I think I cut it short and just decided to get chips on the way home. Right, and that was a Friday. So that was the Friday, and then go out for like a four to five hour hike the next day um and then the day after that do like a two and a half hour speed session right so are you kind of training time rather than distance as well then like just yeah always time always time because there, there kind of comes a point um and it's something I learned from Sophie is there comes a stage where the breakdown on your body is not worth the additional gains that you'd get so I think my longest training run was 52 miles uh, and that was just a kind of 
go out and spend all day on the trail, eat lots, practice, like just practice using the poles and just spend time on your feet. And um, the guideline was between 10 and 13 hours. That's a big day. So it it is a big day. Um, it was delightful. I got to go out. So I, I'd picked this route sort of down the canal and then uh, got onto the North Worcestershire path that sort of links up, um, kind of goes through Hopwood, Licky Hills, up over Waisley, then drops over, goes up Clent, hits the four stones, and then you sort of wind through like Stourbridge, around the back of Stourbridge, and then hit Kinveredge and the caves and the rock houses. And then you go down to the river and then sort of follow the river up to Kinnerminster. It's such a treat of a route. It was lovely. But yeah, like it was just go out, spend 10, 12 hours on your feet. And then the day after that, you're going for a three hour hike. Um, and it's just to get you used to like where doing something like the record attempt differs from doing a long ultra is you have to kind of get used to the fact that you're, you're going to be breaking your body down and then you have to go to bed, get up and do it again and again and again. And there's, there's like no getting around it. You're going to feel like hot trash the next day. And you just, you've just got to learn how to put up with it um, and how to kind of mitigate it as best you can, which, do you know what I was damned grateful for? We'll just take a little break in the conversation there, just so I can let you know that if you want to keep up to date with what's going on with the show, then head over to justupthetrail.com. That's the central hub for everything, podcast, blog, video related. That's where we live, if you like. We also have a Patreon, which if you could contribute to, I'd be ever so grateful. It will just help with a few of the costs that are involved with building this library of stories and adventures and experiences and knowledge and know-how from people in the community for people in the community. So if you can donate to that, that's brilliant. If you can't, don't worry about it. You can follow us on Instagram at Just Up The Trail. And as usual, there'll be loads of stuff over on the website. So head over there. If you've got a story to tell, if you've had a massive adventure that you want to tell the world about, you can always drop me a line. I'm always pleased to hear from anybody who's got a story to tell. Right, let's get back to Leah. So what about like the organization of it then with you like you you, because you had your pit crew didn't you so how do you how do you go about selecting who like your support team i was really lucky in that um my other half chris um and um my friend charlotte who i think you met they came down the first time around and um sort of pit crewed for me for about a week um and it was the week where i was going up like Cornwall so hallelujah um because the prospect of dragging a heavy backpack up and down Crackington Haven can get in the bin um so like they'd crewed for me before they sort of they knew me quite well in terms of like how I tend to break down on a long day um Chris had crewed me on the arc of attrition uh the baby version just the 50 um so kind of the like they, they they knew sort of how to deal with me. Um, and then John, who was the other pit crew, uh, through most of it, basically kind of went, that sounds like an adventure I'm in. Oh, excellent. Um, <laughs> Which you kind of always need someone like that. So it seems like 
what with more enthusiasm than sense yeah yeah yeah, yeah. but it, it also seems like you kind of had people who knew when you needed a cuddle and knew when you needed to kick up the arse uh yeah that's literally the pep talk i once got given by uh the other half excellent in the middle of the arc of attrition because <laughs> i i'd kind of i was i was fully ready to quit at one point um when i was coming into St. Ives and he just looked at me and it's that it's that horrible section after Zena and like no one looks happy and I was chasing cutoffs and you know everyone who comes through there is just done with this nonsense and he just looked at me and was like do you want a hug or a kick at the arse I went I need some real talk right now so he just sort of goes you're moving so nothing's catastrophic get moving get on your bike like, yeah have something to eat and keep get change it change your socks and on you go like not even change your socks. It's just shit. <laughs> um, in terms of your motivation to do these things, is it is how much of it is like like a purely physical athletic achievement that you're after, and how much of it is um, I wonder how much it's going to take to actually break me. Oh, question. Um, I would say it's probably 80 20 in favor of i wonder what happens if i just keep digging in that brain pan so what what i don't like what does that say about not not about you but what does that say about a person it's like yeah no but it's like oh i've got problems we've all got problems <laughs> yeah it's just like if like i'm I, I can go this far and i'm bending and if i go a little bit you know like a ruler like how far does it go like before we actually pings whether that's physically or mentally so you kind of just looking to push that line a little bit do you think um yeah so at the time where i just i'm gonna be honest you can pretty much track like me having a mental health crisis and the likelihood of me running the southwest coast path it's the same line on the graph um but um at the time it was kind of I was coming off a really bad mental health patch. Um, I, I was properly like I, I'd hit rock bottom and rock bottom started hitting back. So at the time I was like, okay, you made it through that. And I kind of went, it's not necessary. Like it is about the record because I want to prove that, you know, some nobody from the Midlands can do epic shit like i i know so many incredible mid-pack female runners who are constantly being put down in subtle and overt ways because it's like oh you're not fast enough you're not good enough it's that sense of like oh i'm not good enough to take on epic nonsense and i'm like no to hell with it just have a go and the only way of proving that because you see people like anna mcnuff and Jenny Tuff and you know Camille Heron and Courtney DeWalter and you sort of put them on a pedestal and go that's for other people but when it's somebody that you regularly go out for a run with suddenly it's kind of oh I can do that and that translates into every other aspect of your life so I desperately wanted to kind of do that just to prove that it could be done but on the other hand it was also really not about the record and saying Okay, at the time when I set out from Studland, I was like, a year ago, I didn't want to wake up in the morning. You don't want to run? Cool. A year ago, you didn't want to live. Crack on. It it was more about sort of going, okay, how much do you want this? And it's not just how much do you want the record? It's how much do you want to 
actually live, not not exist, not function, not go to work, go to bed, eat your dinner. You know, we're, we're talking spotting levels of actually choose life here. And, you know, on the one hand, that can be really dangerous because if you tie your willingness and your desire to kind of grasp onto life to something which has at best a 50 50 chance of success it's, it's yeah it's it's almost along the lines of like alex honnold and his like um free solo of el capitan it's like it's i mean either it works or you die yeah it's like because it, it, like like to me that is the perfect act of of athleticism because one mistake yeah. and he's dead but it, it's still in the same ballpark of what you're talking about if, if you've been down that low and yet you can still push yourself further yeah like what 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 are you capable of pretty much and it kind of really comes to the fore sort of later on um so you know the first few days were tough because like day one you're kind of having that initial moment of oh my god what have i signed up for um by the time i got into sort of day two and day three i had a couple of other mitigating factors that like started coming up which meant that i basically couldn't eat um cue my crew being amazing and basically making fruit mush um i still can't look fruit mush in the eye to this day um but like i managed to eat and i managed to kind of keep going and then um i ended up as soon as i got into cornwall everything sort of got better like i was moving better i was feeling positive i was you know i was seeing actual friends who i'd met previously and on my last fast pack round you know there were people who i knew there there were people i i made so many new friends who i'm still in touch with and i i genuinely cherish because cornwall turned out they were amazing there's also something about cornwall in like the lore of the west there's i mean that's such an american thing but like we've moved from the isle of Wight to dawson it feels like that that lore of the west is always calling to us you know it's definitely um yeah, it, it's really, really strong. And like, people were just amazing. But digging into kind of that post day seven falling off a rock, now my leg is properly just, you know, not only do I feel like hot trash on the inside, my leg is now hot trash on the outside. Um, so, you know, just kind of going through trudging on an incredibly painful injury and I remember my friend Jen at what po- at one point kind of coming through Hale was like, okay, on a scale of like one to 10, where are we in the darkness here? And I was like, I thought about it. And I sort of went, I think we're about a five or a six. Bear in mind that I was like, you know, limping. I could hardly put weight on that leg. Um, I was sleep deprived. I looked like something out of a zombie movie. Um, and I think I'd pretty much just been like trudging and crying and then apologizing for crying for hours. She was like, if this is a five or a six, I really don't want to see you at a 10. We were following along on your, like your Instagram stories and every morning you do a little piece of the camera and it was like, so this is day, um, um, (laughs) and you were looking like each day you were just looking less and less human. Yeah, you went from from the woman that I met in my living room on the morning of or, or the morning of your second day. Yeah, um, you were now just this this running machine who stepped off into the darkness and just did your thing. Yeah, it, it got uglier and uglier as things went on, and you know, 
a hats off to the crew because I think genuinely they worked harder than I did because not only did they have to keep me alive and semi-functioning enough to at least be able to answer yes no questions um but as kind of the injury set in and I started losing time they had to just readjust the plan and readjust the plan and they had to do it all on the fly and bear in mind that like while they'd had some experience crewing me none of us had ever taken on anything like this like I'm not a sponsored athlete. I am not a professional athlete. They are not professional crew. None of us had any source of experience with this. We just kind of went and had a bash. So the fact that the crew managed to get me that far is a credit to them. And frankly, they all deserve a saintdom, never mind a medal. I just wondering, what would the biggest challenge have been? Was it like the terrain? Was it like you've already mentioned that you were struggling to eat um the lack of sleep because like i when you when you stayed at ours you didn't get to us till gone midnight and you were back out again that was a short day yeah that's what i mean um or is it just the 50 miles a day like the wear and tear that 50 plus miles a day does on the body is it all of that i think it's a combination as time went on um so like day four five six i felt fantastic you know, I'd been running like 50 miles a day for the entire week and I felt great. I was like, I'm finally getting my mojo here. Um, so, you know, it, it does eventually kind of wear off, but it's the sort of combined effect of you're pushing your body and there's that general wear and tear that you're going to see from running 50 miles a day. Um, you are never going to catch up with the amount of calories that you're burning. Like I ended up in the space of like 12 days, I lost five and a half, six kilos. Um, And I wasn't exactly, you know, chonky to begin with, Um, but I was a state. And, you know, so there's that side of it. There was also the lack of sleep because after I'd got injured, it took longer to cover the miles. I wasn't covering as many miles. It, It took like you're recovering less. So that adds up. And then when you factor in, pain is really wearing. And having found out, I only found out when I got back to Birmingham and went to see my physio about what I thought was an angry tendon uh, that we'd just sort of strapped up <laughs> into something like a, like literally, they, I, it was sort of the front of my shin and I couldn't lift my toes. So Charlotte, bless her, um, after some help from Joe Meek, grabbed my foot, cranked it to 90 degrees and basically taped it in place and sent me on my way. None of these have got like, um, none of these are doctors or anything, are they? Joe Meek is a physio. Oh, there you go. Oh, that's fine then, yeah. Joe Meek is a physio (laughs) and she is a GB level, like she runs for GB as an ultra runner. So we did manage to get a video call in with her and she was like, it's fine. It's probably just a tendon. It's really common. And then we got back to Birmingham and uh, I went to see my physio and he was like, you need to go get that x-ray because that's a fracture jesus christ so so which leads on to my next thing so like at some point like it's it's always going to be hard you're not going to get away from it you're not running 630 odd miles easily but at what point does it change or what at what point did it change from being hard to almost being dangerous and how like how many miles in was it that did you start to consider that this isn't going to happen and then after that 
how much further did you push on after, like even if you thought I'm not going to get the record how much further did you then push on afterwards I never gave I never gave up on the record until the day I passed out and the crew didn't either um so there there was one brief moment where for about 5 minutes I genuinely hoped that Joe would say you need to stop you need to pack it in right now because that's going to get permanent and that was you know because i'd basic i'd been running on what turned out to be a busted leg and the the most i'd had was like headache pills you know they here's a couple of paracetamol for your busted leg crack on um and you know what paracetamol it it, it was wonderful you, you could feel in. I was going to ask you what was the decision making process like for calling it, but yeah, there, was, it, no there was no decision. So, do you can you recall what actually happened, or was it just one minute you were running and the next you weren't? Uh, yeah, so we set out on the last morning with a lovely chap called Ryan who came out and met us at like six o'clock in the morning in the middle of bloody nowhere. And yeah, my body was not obeying any orders at all, so I was slurring, you know, I couldn't walk in a straight line. and all I wanted in the entire world was to just lie down and sleep on the middle of the trail. So I was kind of, you know, doing the thing where I was crying and apologising for being really bad company. And we eventually sort of got into Port Isaac, which was like three and a bit miles, you know, up and down the stairs from Port Quinn. And we, as we sort of got into Port Isaac, I was doing that thing where you start walking into walls. So we've stopped at the harbour and to this day, best interaction with a random member of the public there were these two fishermen stood by the harbour and I'm sort of there like draped over the seawall gently heaving <laughs> and, and the fisherman turned around to my companion Ryan and they were like she all right mate yeah she's just run a really long way I think she needs a rest <laughs> was like, okay cool so yeah eventually he was like you need solid food put me on this bench in Port Isaac um, and ran ahead to find my crew who were meant to be meeting me there. And literally the last thing I remember is like lying down on this bench to sort of dry heave mm. and like cry. And that was it. Next thing I knew, I was waking up in somebody's car oh, three hours hell. later. Bloody hell. <laughs> so they, they, yeah, they apparently kind of, I've got like really vague sort of half flash memories of like, being propped up and Charlotte trying to feed me a juice box blesser um and like they had my coach on the phone and you know she was like oh it's fine it's fine just get us some solid food into her she'll be fine at which point Charlotte snapped the photo that she eventually posted when I'd pulled out of me passed out in the car and she was like I don't think she's going to be eating anything soon <laughs> so they kind of in fairness to them they absolutely agonized Ryan the local runner was an absolute angel he did not he didn't leave until I'd woken up um but yeah they they kind of called a couple of our local friends um one of whom is a paramedic yeah and I'd already promised several days ago she would not have to see me in a professional capacity and another one is um Tracy Waite who um is a local PT very well respected in the ultra community and both of them were like nah mate if you pa like you, if, if she's passed out that's it you're done you're done because the next section it's kind of the only way you're fetching anyone off that is with a helicopter and can we not yeah it's proper coast guard stuff after that isn't it for a, for a good spell as well isn't it i mean never mind anything else just chuck me <laughs> off now i'm not living down the embarrassments 
So how many miles was that in total then? 517 miles in 11 and a bit days. Jesus. Wow. I feel that we were fortunate to be a tiny, tiny little part of that effort. Honestly, you guys set the tone because we were, we were shocked that you sort of got in touch so proactively. And like all I heard about it from the crew was they were like, yeah, Trail Angels got in touch. They were like, come and park on our drive. You can use our electricity. We have pizza. And I was like, these people exist. Yeah. So um, basically um, you had set off and if, if it was Charlotte doing the um, Instagramming. It was, yeah. So I, I said, oh, um, if you need, need anything, we're not far away. Give us a shout if you're passing by or whatever. And then um, Charlotte had put, said a message like, oh, if, if uh, we're at Osmington, maybe you could run out with a Calippo. And I was like, well, we're on Portland, but if need, if you need anything, let me know and I'll run you around. And then th- th- about 10 minutes after the, can you bring us a Calippo? There was, um, is is there any chance we can stay on your drive tonight? Because we've been that busy. We haven't been able to sort sort anywhere else. I was like, yeah, that'd be right. Do you want pizza? <laughs> and then, <laughs> then me and you met for the first time or the only time before tonight uh, at about 10 to 6 on the following morning as I was going out to work yeah yeah genuinely thank you we were following you along all all the way around and we were immensely immensely proud of you and we were immensely proud of just being that tiny little part of it so thank you very much for for letting us help I've as tough as it was what there must have been a few highlights okay kamikaze pheasants in South Devon I think like the local shooting range must have released them. The crew had like hundreds of them, hundreds running down the lane. And it's like, you have wings, get out the road. But they were on the trails as well. Um, Just to make an ethical point, they probably couldn't use their wings here. They've been fed up so fat that they couldn't fly away from being shot. Potentially. Sorry. (laughs) Yeah, that might be what was was going on. But yeah, it was just this kind of wherever you will come from. Um, the sunrise on day two, well, you would have seen it on your way mm-hmm. to work, but just that sky was ridiculous. Running through a herd of like 50 roe deer cool. with, head to- with head torches just in the middle of the coast path um, in South Cornwall, that was awesome. Meeting and making so many friends. So like um, Sean um, in South Devon, um, Jen and ellie and tracy and like so many people who i'm now still friends with who i met for the first time you know semi crying on them or just straight up crying on them tony and sam from the grizzly they were amazing they kind of came out on day two met me on the undercliffs and sort of saw me through to sidmouth and then later on drove like three hours plus to go and meet me on the north coast in cornwall because they were like it's a day out it's an adventure yeah let's do it um doing an impromptu poetry night whilst trudging through the dark towards Kerhays with uh Ellie and Vanessa. Like it there were just so many big and small moments of human kindness and incredible views and like wildlife encounters and you know, the sort of thing that you can only really do if you are out there for long enough because Unless you're out at like six o'clock in the morning, you're not going to see the deer out or you're not going to kind of, yeah. And then like um, the last one, I'm definitely going to flag up as like 
making the best of a bad situation was when I messed up in Plymouth because the guidebook and the track and everything was like, take the ferry at Mount Batten, don't take the route round because like it goes through industrial estates and everyone tells you like, don't go through the industrial estates, you'll get mugged. And it, it's just grim. Well, not even getting mugged, tarmac's horrible. It's vile, it's vile. But like the first time I'd done it as well, I'd taken that route and it was before they'd updated the signage and it was like, it just sends you through all of the like, fishy stinky docks and everything so you know had to go back and redo that section which meant that I was kind of coming into Port Wrinkle with John at stupid o'clock in in, in the night um and you know properly feeling sorry for myself and trying to come back from it so singing along to Disney songs at the top of our lungs running down this trail in the middle of the night wonderful I mean full scale scream crying along to let it go oh fantastic Fantastic. Amazing. So, how do you see yourself? Are you a runner or are you a poet? Are are they so entangled now that you can't do one without the other? Um, yeah. I mean, my favourite places to write are, you know, in a tree or on a rock, somewhere out. You know, if, even better if there's cake or a pint. Not not gonna lie, but like the best places to write are kind of the quiet spots where you can just chill out on the trails. And equally, I don't understand why culturally we view them as two very separate entities. If you sort of come away from viewing running as like, girl, look at me, I'm so tough and kind of go, it's essentially meditation for people who really hate their own heads. It's less of a separation. What have you got planned for for this year running wise? No huge races. I've got a marathon coming up. I'm doing Endure 24 as a solo because I want to rematch. And then just kind of picking out a couple of, maybe a couple of solo trail adventures. So I'm heading out to see some friends in Chamonix, which means I get to go and run in the Alps for the first time ever. Not so much racing as like, where can I go and have a really good adventure? I suppose there's that feeling you're you're at that level now that you can just go out into a landscape and just move at a pace that is dictated by you not by your fitness or the landscape itself like you if if you want to walk through this bit you can but if you want to go faster you can if nothing else the really the really nice thing about having not just run the coast path but kind of been stupid enough to go back and do it twice is I really don't feel the need anymore to kind of prove stuff so I, I don't kind of get into, I, I don't really feel the need to kind of get into like who's tougher with people because I'm like, I don't care. So it's kind of, I'm going to go and have a good time. Yeah. Saying that, the FKT on the Southwest Coast Path, do you still fancy it? Um, I do still fancy it. I'm going to see what happens over the course of the next eight to 12 months because uh, we've had a few attempts happen. Uh, Danny Blackie, absolute props to her, has set a solo female FKT of 18 days, 15 hours. Uh, the overall women's FKT is still held by Judy Gardner at 14 days, 14 hours. But yeah, the nice thing about um, the trail community and especially women in the trail community is that all of us girls who've had a crack at it, we're all in touch with each other anyway. and We're all cheering each other on. So like whoever gets it, we just... At this point, we just want somebody to break it. I don't care who it is. 
That's wonderful. And if you ever need, need a driveway to park your van on, you can, you know where we are. Well, that was a lot of fun, wasn't it? I said during the interview that we were really proud just to be a tiny, tiny part of her efforts to go for the fastest known time. And I think she'll be back. Yeah, I just thought that was wonderful. I thank her for her time. If you can head over to the Patreon and support us, that'd be wicked. If not, please just share us with your mates. If you know someone who's into hiking and wants something to listen to on the trail, then yeah, pass us around, please. That'd be wonderful. You can follow us on Instagram at Just Up The Trail. And as usual, there'll be loads of stuff over on the website. And I shall speak to you next time. Just Up The Trail. Top of the hill, top of the-